Good morning. You guys have a good Thanksgiving? You guys still eating leftovers? Aren't they better the second time than the first? What is it about that, huh? I'm going to have to search the Bible to find out why that's true, but I know it is true. I've had like three piles of leftovers, and it's, it's still as good as it was the first moment, even better. Uh, I want to, you know, we are sitting under the umbrella of Thanksgiving right now. We're going to be doing that again in the message today, and uh, I just want to add my thanks to Isaac and Valeria for traveling all this way to be with us. That's no small task to create room in their schedule back home, to pack up their daughter and to be here with us today to, to connect us to the realities of what God does in lives. And, you know, I, I, I'm, I am seeing the need for God to awaken in me a greater sense of thankfulness for all that he does. I, I just I move through life too fast. I don't sit down and take notice enough. And so just listening to the story of God rescuing and redeeming a situation that should have just had a plot line of misery. Instead, it's got a plot line of rejoicing. This is a couple that is rejoicing in the story that God is telling through their lives, and they've brought it to us, and we are able to rejoice that there is a God who still redeems. He still steps into things that are broken, and he makes them new, and he brings them to life. And then there's the rejoicing of knowing a, a, a Jessica McCarty who was just part of a church and living life for the glory of God, takes whatever she's got in her and goes to Mexico and just becomes available to God to be used. And, you know, as Eric was encouraging you to consider, you know, I don't know if we have these ideas that these stories exist on the mission field of these people who <clears throat> preached to thousands and there was this conversion, etc. They're just, they're just you and I. They're just normal Christians who go and trust God to show up in a moment that there'll be an evening where you're praying with the kids and you don't know exactly what to pray and I guarantee you Jessica probably had to work through all those, I don't know what to do right now, I don't know what to say, uh, but she just was available, and God just used her. And she put her hands on someone and began to pray, and the Holy Spirit was there. And you're listening today to a story that got created years ago as God just used any one of us to do that. So as Eric encouraged you, I encourage you as well. You know, Think about how God is calling you just to step out and be available to let his, his spirit use you and, and consider whether God's sending you to be somebody who goes this year on a, a trip to, to serve in missions opportunities that the Lord has given us. Well, this morning, we are continuing in our little mini-series uh, that you know, we're going to pick it up and start it here and there from time to time. But um, we're exploring this reality. That Christianity creates in us as the family of God certain characteristics, certain traits, if you will, right? And so last week, and I won't take the time to go unpack all this again, but please go back and get the message from last week just so you understand what, what the illustration here is that we're building from. But in the, in the same way that everything that God has created 
is made up of genetic structures inside of it. And inside of that is some, some programming that God put in place to make those things become what it is that he wants them to be. And so as it took years and years and years for scientists and biologists to figure out that, that deep down inside a flower, a rose, was molecular structures that went all the way down to a level where there were, they could discover DNA material. And in that DNA material, there was this programming, if you will, this tell the rose to be a rose thing going on deep inside. And the reason why you smell a rose and it smells fragrant and beautiful and it doesn't smell like a garbage can is because that DNA inside of it is telling it to do that. And so there's, there's a similar work in the spirit that takes place. That verse there in Titus chapter 2, uh, I want to unpack it just to catch what it says. It says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desire. So deep down inside of us, in a similar way that that rose has got some programming in it that makes it take on certain characteristics. Deep inside of every Christian, there is present a working of God that causes us to take on certain characteristics and traits. And this is, a, this is just one passage that highlights that. The grace of God appears. The grace of God becomes knowable. The grace of God becomes something you are aware of, and it has its impact on you. As you become a child of God, this grace appears in our lives, and it produces certain characteristics. And so we say no to ungodliness and yes to righteousness, not just because there's this external pressure on you to behave a certain way. Oh, God, rescue us from that version of Christianity. Young people, what a, what a, and it's hard to avoid this. You grow up looking at life in your family, in the people around you, believing that Christianity is behaving that way versus behaving that way. And you can grow up believing that it's just a matter of you take your behavior and stick it in that category rather than in that category. Do you realize you can grow up that way and never know Christ. You just learn that when you behave this way, all the people around go, and when you behave this way, they go, mm, to you. So I just learned to behave this way. You don't have to be a Christian to do that. You don't even have to know anything about Jesus Christ and what he's done, and the Holy Spirit doesn't even have to exist for you to do that. But for a Christian... There's something inside of us that's appeared, that's made itself known. And it is instructing us. It is speaking to us and informing our lives so that we take on certain characteristics and traits. So as the people of God, we, have a, we share a common DNA genetic code. And that DNA wants to produce certain behaviors certain attitudes, certain aromas in our lives. And, and what I, I, I want to highlight this for us as a church because in a very real way, when people walk through that door or they walk into contact with the people of God at Lakeview Christian Center, 
they ought to be able to say, boy, you guys look a lot alike. I, I notice a family resemblance among you. One of the things, and I'm highlighting this on purpose, one of the things I would want anyone to come in contact, when they come in contact with our lives, is they, they smell the aroma of thankfulness in our lives. There's an aroma of gratitude among God's people that we are about to be thankful or we just were thankful for something in our lives. And we sound that way. And listen, that'll be very noticeable because you and I are growing up living in an entitlement culture, a complaining culture, a culture that stares at life and finds reasons to be adverse with it, finds reasons to complain about something I don't have or why it didn't go my way and why everybody's not treating me a certain way because I, you know, I'm entitled to be treated a certain way. That's the opposite of what the presence of God and the, the truth of God produces in us. So I, I want us to visit this little concept in, in various places because I think it's just what the scriptures teach and produce in us. But last week, we started down this road, and I think I put most of these in your outline, by looking at some very sobering truth that's in Romans chapter 1. This, these are sobering passages that are here because Romans chapter 1 is trying to explain the gospel to us by taking us onto the scene of humanity. Romans chapter 1 starts us down the road of, why does this gospel matter? Who really needs it anyway? I mean, is it just an optional item that amongst all the things that are out there in the world, there's this gospel thing. Some people go for that. Some people go for something else. No, it's trying to put all of humanity into a category that desperately needs the gospel. That's where we start in Romans chapter 1, and then the rest of Romans unpacks that gospel to us. But it starts with, here's humanity, and as members of the human race, it's describing us. And it puts this sort of information in front of us. Romans 1 verse 28 says, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, right, so this is a condition of humanity. And I'm going to show you in a little bit that that translation there, you could actually word this translation. They did not see fit to have God in their knowledge. That's kind of the way in which it's actually constructed. So there's a condition in humanity that says, you know what? I don't really pursue God. I don't really know God all that well. I know he's out there somewhere. I, know I have some existence concept of a God out there, but... You know, day to day, I'm not really after that. That's not all that important. That's, you know, maybe good for some people. Well, they didn't see fit to have God in their knowledge. So God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy and murder and strife, deceit maliciousness in their gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, right? So here's this condition of humanity. But I want you to notice something. This is incredibly sobering. That description is set in contrast against another possibility. There were two possibilities in this chapter. There was having God in your knowledge and the life that it would produce 
and not having God in your knowledge and the life that it would produce. And humanity chose this one. Verse 21 in that same chapter backs us up into that passage. It says, for although they knew God, right, they had some knowledge of God. This doesn't mean intimate knowledge like we have when we get saved. But they knew something of God. They did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. So here's where we are. God, you know, just like the grace of God has appeared, there's something of God that's become knowable. God has made himself knowable. God has revealed himself to humanity. And there's an option here in that revelation. Somewhere in your life, the revelation of God comes to you. And you have an option in that moment. You can either seek and want and choose and respond to have God in your knowledge, and you will start down one path, or you can choose to not have God in your knowledge. You can minimize whatever God has shown you. You can bury it under a sea of other information. You can neglect it, ignore it, and you will start down another path. That's pretty sobering because it's a pretty destructive path. And it's not just destructive in humanity's past. It's destructive for you and I today. You're sitting in this room today and you have an opportunity to respond to the knowledge of God or to blow it off. And either way, sets your feet going down some kind of a pathway in response to that. So two observations here I want to pick up. One their tumble into a life of darkness and destruction is set in motion by their failure to respond to God with honor and thankfulness. They failed to respond and they started down this path. And second, the ongoing trouble of life that's described in this passage is furthered by their failure to acknowledge God or to have God in their knowledge. Right, so I just want, I want to take those two ideas apart here for a moment with us as we unpack this message on thanksgiving and the knowledge of God. Let me just take a moment to talk about this, the Bible's mechanisms of response. The Bible has built into it mechanisms where God calls on us to respond. God does all kinds of things, marvelous, amazing things, serious and sober things, powerful things. But then the Bible calls on us to respond to those things somehow. And the Bible's full of what I call these mechanisms of response. You don't read far into the scriptures. As a matter of fact, you don't really get out of the Garden of Eden without experiencing sacrifice and offering. Right? It's all throughout scripture. People would bring sacrifice. They would take an animal and sacrifice it to God. They would present an offering to God. Well, what was that? Well, it's, it's a response. Something went before that. Something happened that caused man to respond with an offering. Why am I bringing an offering? Why am I bringing a sacrifice? Well, those are responses to something that we become aware of. There's some kind of revelation in our hearts. When we read through the scriptures, we find people singing in the Bible. There's a lot of singing in the Bible. Have you noticed that? Big events happen. Right, they cross the Red Sea and they break out, you know, like, like there's a band available. You know, we cross the Red Sea. Hey, where's the band? Bring the band in here. And they start singing a song. 
and they celebrate with song. Well, singing songs in celebration has to have something going before it. You celebrate something in song, which is what most of the songs are doing. They're celebrating something. So they are responding to God in what he's done. The, the tithe in Scripture is a response to God. Something happened before the tithe gets given. There's something that happens. Thankfulness is a response to God. Something has happened that we have surveyed the landscape and we have said, now that, that's good right there. That's going to be good for me. Oh, thank you. Right? Something happens before you just don't walk around. If you walk up to somebody, a stranger, I challenge you to do this on the street today. Walk up to somebody and just say, thank you. They will scratch their heads in puzzle, right? They're going to ask for what, right? Because everyone knows something comes before thank you. So an attitude of thankfulness in us is a response to God. We know something first, and then we respond with thankfulness. Well, this is an interesting thing. Leon Morris, describing Romans chapter 1, he says, They did not act on the knowledge of God they had. Right? They did not respond. Though they knew God, they did not respond to him with honoring him and thankfulness. So they knew something about God, but as Leon Morris said, they did not act on the knowledge of God they had. That was the breakdown. There was a knowledge of God available to them. They did not act on the knowledge of God they have. And in this setting, their acting was to honor God, to acknowledge the greatness of what God had shown them and to label it as good by saying, thank you, God, for what you've done. But they did not act. They did not respond. So if I put this question to each of us this morning, how are you responding to what God has revealed to you. God has done something. How are you responding to what God has done in your own life? Right? I won't unpack all these things, but just think with me for a second. There are offerings and sacrifices in Scripture because people are responding to something. They bring an offering and a sacrifice, and the, and the Old Testament spells out. Now, they were doing this before the law actually spelled it out, by the way, because something in their heart told them something. And then it gets spelled out in the law where they realize, I have sinned against a God with whom it is not okay, and me and God are not okay. All right, that goes before an offering is given. I respond to that condition. I respond to an awareness that I have sinned and that God's not okay with it by bringing an offering to God, right? So question, how are you doing responding to an awareness that you have fallen short of God's glory? Does, does that even matter to you? Are you convicted about that? Are you bothered by the thought that it's not okay? I've done things in my life that are not okay with God. Because when that bothers you enough, your next question, which is the most important question, is how do I fix it? 
See, the great things about sacrifices and offerings is they don't actually fix it. They just point you to the one who will fix it. They make you aware of a solution. But can I just tell you that if, you've, if you're not in touch with, I'm out of step with God, if you're not in touch with, I have offended God, if you're not in touch with the idea that someone innocent needs to fix what's wrong between me and God, if you're not in touch with that, when Jesus Christ shows up on the landscape of life, you'll walk right past him. You won't recognize him at all. And you won't recognize your need for him. Are you here this morning aware that you do stuff that offends God? I know that's uncomfortable. I know we'd love to just kind of say, ah, you know, that's the part about this whole religion thing I kind of don't like. You know, religion makes you feel bad like you've done something wrong. Well, exactly. You have. <laughs> and I have too. And i got to face it. But the gospel is actually good news. It absorbs that need into good news, and I respond to God. Right? I'm, I'm responding this morning, and we have an opportunity to give to God. That's a response to God. It's, it's in the scriptures before the law even speaks about it. It is a response to what God has provided. You know, by the way, you don't give your tithe in advance. It's like, hey, I know I'm going to make this much money next month, so I'm going to go ahead and tithe. That's not how the tithe is designed. The tithe is a response. God has shown up in your life. He has imparted something to you. His provision made that available. You respond to God by giving 10% of it back to him. That's a response. Great question. How are you doing responding to God with a tithe? See, you recognize, well, you know, I don't really do that. Well, can I just tell you a major reason? You can argue with me all you want. I don't believe you. You have a hard time making a case for, I am acknowledging that God is the source of all things in my life when you don't respond to that revelation. Remember, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. They did not respond to what God was doing in their life. God provides for you every day, every day, week after week, month after month, God's provision comes pouring into your life. Do you respond to God with that? Like singing. Singing is a response to God. There's reciting information, there's speaking information, and there's singing information, right? And, and they're different, aren't they? Singing involves different pieces of you. When you sing about something, it's a little bit different than, you know, just acknowledging something, than just saying something to someone else. Singing involves the heart and the head getting married together in this, this sort of emotion-connected way. It's why singing is done to music. It's why music has got so much ability to it. It's got major chords and minor chords. It's got this ability to, to bring something out of us that could be full of tears, full of celebration, intense moments, right? Movies capture this, don't they? You watch a movie and there's this intense scene and the music turns really intense and you're just like, yeah, man, take that hill, baby. Take it. And you're just all fired up. That, that, that's music. But isn't it strange that you have the capacity to do that? And isn't it weird that nobody had to tell you that, look, when the, when the music's got these real big timpanies and bass lines in it, you need to act like it's really intense, okay? Did anybody have to tell you that? You know, and then when violins start, anybody have to tell you, okay, this is the sad part. 
I know you wanted to laugh and jump up and down, but this is the sad part. You don't do that here. Like, it's just something in you tapped into that, right? You were responding to that music. Can I tell you, when you come into this setting, there's a place where God wants us to sing to him involving your heart and your head. Listen, you sit in here, you're not much of a singer. That's a problem. That's a problem with God. Listen, I know, and let me take a, a swipe at people who take a swipe at people like us. Um, you know, there, are, there are Christian leaders out there who would say, well, you know, that's a problem with some of the churches out there. They just kind of get all that music going, trying to play on your emotions, et cetera, et cetera. Um, right, well, God wired us with those abilities. And something's going to tap into them. So if you come into this place and, you're, and you turn your emotions off, you know, I'm Christian. You know, I'm, I'm into the word thinking, be clear, don't be led by my emotions. Let me just turn my emotions off when I walk in Lakeview Christian Center. Okay, I don't find that anywhere in the Bible. Matter of fact, I find the Bible wants to stir your emotions up. That's not the only thing it wants to stir up. It wants to stir it up with content and truth and revelation and insight, and your mind should be at work. But when you come in this place, you ought to be affectionately, loudly singing. You shouldn't just be mouthing words. Yeah, can we get to the teaching part? Uh, yeah, we'll get to the teaching part, but it doesn't seem to be doing you any good. Because <laughs> the teaching part, what the teaching part should do is it should create volume for your singing. Right? If we teach correctly, we see something about God. And when we see something about God, we go, hey, can he just be done? And can we just sing Amazing Grace right now? And we sing it with a heart that's full and overflowing. Because we saw something, right? Singing is a response to something. Listen, thankfulness is a response to something. Now, take note of this, our second point. That there is a knowledge of God in every context of our lives. There's a knowledge of God in every context of our lives. Note this. There's an object or reason for our thankfulness that we're going to get into a little bit today. But there's a context for our thankfulness as well. Right? In my heart, at some point, I'm going to see something that is going to inspire a response of thankfulness. Now, whenever that happens, my feet and my life are going to be located at a particular context, if you will. There's going to be stuff going on around me. As we said last week, we looked at Eve's context, we looked at Satan's context, humanity's context. You and I live in a context. So at some point, if at any moment I'm going to respond to God with a heart that says, thank you, I'm going to be located at a particular address. I'm going to be surrounded by particular people. I'm going to have certain circumstances going on. There will be a context to my life the moment I ever say, thank you. Lord. And sometimes the context doesn't seem to fit the response, thank you. Sometimes that looks like there's a conflict, like there's a misprint in the Bible here. Why are these people thankful? Do they know what's going on around them? Their context doesn't fit, thank you. Right? Well, make sure we see that. Let me just scoot you through these real fast. We've got a lot of scripture, but we're not going to sit down in any of them. Right, this is a curious one. I almost didn't put this one in, but I thought, given the Supreme Court decision in the summer, 
we need to hear Daniel, Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. Listen to what he says. It says, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed. You guys know who Daniel is? You remember Daniel in the Old Testament? Daniel was a Israelite who had been relocated to Babylon. He had gone into exile. He would eventually discover they're going to be there for 70 years. They're going to be departed from their homeland, living in a foreign land amongst idol worshipers and heathens whose practice was anything but to honor the one true God. So they were foreigners in that setting. This was not a culture that was carved out of Judeo-Christian values. This was a, they were the foreigners here. And a decree is about to be made. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. What was the document that he's referring to that got signed? Because, you know, big tax refund coming their way? <laughs> Freedom? extra day off each week. Oh, Lord, thank you. No, no, no. If you know the story there, the document that got signed was the Supreme Court, the king, had signed a document outlawing prayer in the land to anybody but himself. So if you were a follower of Yahweh, praying to Yahweh just got outlawed in your land. Punishment for that would be to throw you to the lion's. And Daniel, as was his custom, crawled into his prayer closet and gave thanks. What? <laughs> right, how many of you guys, right, we live in this setting. How many of you guys watched, I remember it was a Friday during the summer, don't remember the date, Friday during the summer that we got word that the Supreme Court had made a decision in our land to validate same-sex marriages, changing the landscape of families in our country and setting aside what God had revealed about marriages. How many of you guys, after that revelation, crawled into your prayer closet and gave thanks? Me neither. What could possibly produce that kind of response in this man? in that moment. Right? Sometimes the context of our giving thanks can be a little bit confusing. It doesn't seem to fit. Right? Jesus could be famous for giving thanks in settings that look like that's not the right response. John chapter 6, verse 7. Situation arises. There's a massive crowd that's gathered to listen to teaching. It says, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little, right? They've got a dilemma on their hands. There's a massive crowd that needs to be fed. There's not a place for them to go off and find food. Verse 8 says, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Now, that's the men, right? 
So if they've got some women with them, which they do, and they've got some children with them, which they do, I mean, what is this, number 10, 15,000 people? This is a large reception. And you guys have to plan your wedding receptions. This is an enormous reception. You know, count the heads and multiply by X amount of dollars. Remember that equation for you? Verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. It's like a buffet line now, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. A little bit later in the chapter, it talks about the crowd that came back at another time to revisit this location because, they, you know, this is, this is now like a buffet. You know, let's, let's go to the buffet again today. So they show back up there, and this is how the Bible describes that location. It says, other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. I don't know if I ever paid attention to that before. I mean, I knew that was the location of the miracle of the feeding of the thousands, but the Bible highlights as the place where Jesus gave thanks, not just where he did a miracle, but the place where he gave thanks. But that place was a weird place because he had this much provision for this much need in that moment. 200 denarii, that, that's almost like a year's wages for a worker would be required to feed these people. You've got this little boy's lunch that you're going to, that's what you've got. Right? And that's not, a lot of us can identify with living in a space where it feels like, okay, I've, I've got this much provision in my life and this much need going on, right? Maybe you don't get the fish thing and the crowd thing, but do you get that one? You got this much provision in your life right now? And this much need? How many of us greet that situation with, and I gave thanks in that moment? That doesn't sound like a good equation, right? I can't fix this. I can't meet this need. I'm not going to make it to the end of the month. And he gave thanks. Look at Matthew chapter 11. This whole chapter is an interesting development, but in verse 20, things are kind of going unfavorably in this chapter. Jesus is going to be accused of being a glutton, a drunkard. Verse 20, it says, Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Right? He pronounced the woes on the cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum. And look in verse, chapter 11, verse 25. At that time, at this moment when he's going from city to city and they're accusing him, they don't respect him, they don't receive his ministry, they're not responding to the messages he's preaching. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. I thank you, Father. How many of us 
greet moments in our lives that are unresponsive, moments in our lives that are unfruitful with I thank you, Father. Right, as a pastor, if I'm looking at the ministries of the church and I see unresponsiveness, I see unfruitfulness, it seems like a strange setting for me to have in my heart thankfulness in that moment. It's a problem. Something's broken here. How many parents, you've lived your lives toward your children, you've sacrificed for their lives, you've imparted what you have of the knowledge of God, you've brought them to church, you've prayed for them, you've prayed with them, and they're unresponsive and unfruitful in their lives. Maybe you feel inspired in that moment to come out with a big, I thank you, Father. Right, some of you here, you're students, maybe you're in school, you have been faithful, you've been studying, you've been working hard, and you're still failing that stinking class. All your efforts are unfruitful. This is Jesus, the Son of God. He says, for this purpose I have come, to preach. And so he goes from town to town to preach, and the people don't repent. They don't respond. They're not broken. They're not open. They're not receptive. They're accusing him. They're rejecting him. That's what life feels like right now. And he responds with, I thank you, Father. Really? The Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son. Do you recognize the context of this? This is the Apostle Paul opening his communication to the church at Corinth, this is the most dysfunctional, problematic church in the New Testament. Chapter after chapter just moves to a new address of they got a problem in this category, oh, and they got a problem in this category over here. They're, they're divisive, they can't seem to get along. There is sin going on in this church that even the people in the, I mean, Bourbon Street, they're not doing this kind of stuff. That's what he says about this church. There is selfishness in this setting. There is, there's racial tensions here. There are class breaks, breakdowns that people who have and the people who have not have all tried to come together and do church. And there's divisions among them. And Paul opens the letter with, I give thanks to my God always for you. All right, this stuff looks like it doesn't fit. Every one of these contexts look like they're at odds with a response that says, thank you. What empowers gratitude in each of these contexts is what they knew about God in that moment. Is what was in Romans chapter 1. God made himself known to them, but they didn't respond in thanks. Well, in these settings, God is made known in these settings. There's some rich stuff in these settings. There's some stuff that the eye doesn't see. It, it seems to be invisible stuff, but it's there. There's more there than meets the eye. There's more going on 
than what the context is telling you that's going on. So when Jesus goes from city to city and there's this unresponsiveness, unrepentance, people aren't responding, no one's saying yes, no one's coming to faith, he says, but I thank you, Father, Lord, controller, owner of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and reveal them to children. All of a sudden, Jesus brings into this moment what was always there, but could have been easily overlooked, his awareness that the reason why people respond is because of God. Not because of them. The power to respond to the gospel has not been entrusted to man. It is in the hands of God. I thank you, Father, that you have hidden these things and revealed these things exactly the way you wanted to. All things have been handed over to me. That's a big statement. Well, no one's responding to me because it is occurring exactly as the Father has planned. What Jesus sees in this moment when people are not responding is there is a plan at work right now in this place. And this one's not responding, that one's not responding. But I thank you, Father, that you have hidden and revealed these things exactly as you will. You are in charge of this. They're not in charge of this. Because at this moment, you move from city to city. You move from activity in your life to activity. You move from marriage to marriage, from child to child. And you don't see fruitfulness. At some point, you're going to decide, whatever I'm doing, it doesn't fix people. I'm just going to stop doing it. Unless you see something else that's in the context with you, that God is in charge of their responses. So even though you've got several cities in a row where there's been unresponsiveness, you can still look at that and say, I thank you, God, because I know what I see that's not seeable is that you are at work here. When Paul opens up his thankfulness to the people in Corinth, it's because of things he sees about God that are in that church. There's a lot of stuff in that church to see that's broken and going bad. But he sees something else there, right? Let's look at that passage. He sees the grace of God that was given to them. He sees that they were enriched in him. He sees that God is faithful in that setting. So in that context, there's no inspiration for thankfulness until Paul sees something else that's there. What does he see? He sees the knowledge of God. He acknowledges God in that place. And now all of a sudden, he can say, thank you. There is a knowledge of God in us that's like this DNA code that instructs our manner of life. It instructs our attitude, right? Let me show you this. Thought here, right? This is this is the way the DNA model is supposed to work, right? There's something on the interior of a DNA molecule that produces characteristics outside of it. So there's more of a nucleus element that informs what's going to be manifested on the outside, right? So this is this is I'm, I'm probably totally botching your biology, but you're, don't go with your biology teacher at this moment, okay? I know you didn't like them anyway. Um, there is something that informs. Thanksgiving, right? As I said last week, it's a cheap version of Christianity to stand in front of a bunch of Christians and say, listen, Christians should be more thankful. Of all the people in the world, we should be more thankful. Go get it. Have at it. Tell somebody thank you. 
Now, this, this is not like what you did with your child when your child was, had to be told, go tell your grandma thank you, give her a hug, right? Because I know none of this is inside of you, so I'm imposing it on you. In the, in the workings of God, something gets inside of us that comes out of us in the form of thankfulness. And that's what's in these verses here. And, and we could be here all day looking at these verses. Something appears. The grace of God appears instructing us, manifesting in our lives. And so walk with me real quickly through these passages here. We're going to go through them very fast. This is what's in us that's instructing us into our thankfulness. Psalm 135, verse 3. It says, praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. And we could stop right there. The Lord is good. Sing to his name. <clears throat> Why do we sing? Well, because he's good. We respond with song, and if I had the opportunity, and you put a tune to it, I'm going to sing it like I'm, like I'm some barroom buddy hanging out with, hey, they struck up our song, and we all swayed together and sang that song. But that's not just re reciting something, is it? It's singing. It's robust singing. Right? The, the who dat chant gets going when a significant touchdown gets scored that finally puts us ahead for the game. And we sing it, Right? Uh, any of y'all just kind of like, who, who dat? Say, <laughs> beat them saints. Hey, can you get that for me? Who dat? Who dat? Uh. No, you sing it, don't you? Because you are responding to something. That touchdown is good news. Woo! Who dat, baby? I got an attitude, right? Who dat? That's what the Bible is into sing. The Lord is good. Sing to his name. Don't come into his building with this attitude. The Lord is good. I think I hear music. <laughs> Sing. Be convinced in your soul that God is good. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself. Israel has his own possession. Right? This, this is informing my context, by the way. Because I may feel like in a moment, and you may feel like in a moment, God is nowhere to be found. The stuff going on in your life makes you feel like you're alone. God has abandoned you. But this is the stuff in your DNA that screams otherwise. It says, no, 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 no. God has chosen you for himself. You are his special possession. For I know that the Lord is great, that our Lord is above all gods. I mean, does that sing? Does that, does that create thankfulness? Because some little God, small g, has washed up into my life and is pulling something, challenging something, trying to override something in my life. But in me is an awareness. In my DNA is awareness. The Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord does, he pleases. Whatever he pleases, he does. That's who God is. Well, if that's true, then I can respond with thank you. God, I'm full of thanks. Even though that little, that little God's in your life? Yeah, because my Lord is above all gods. But this looks impossible. Yeah, but, but the Lord does whatever he pleases. Whatever. He does it. Right, Isaiah chapter 46. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind. You transgressors, remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other I am God and there is no one like me. 
declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, right? This is DNA material. This is the DNA that Jesus was affected by when he looked out from city to city and saw no responsiveness, no interest, criticism, his DNA, though, in that moment informed him, God's counsel will stand and God will accomplish all of his purposes. Even though I'm staring at these people and they don't seem to be going with the program, inside of me is an awareness that God will accomplish all of his purposes. I thank you, Father. So this is what brings thanks into a context where it doesn't seem to fit. There's a purpose of God that is actually being worked out. Acts chapter 4. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, for truly in, in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You're standing in Jerusalem when they haul Jesus off, the messenger, the one who has brought God near to people, the minister of mercy and healing, and they haul him off to kill him. You stand there in the courtyard as they're about to take him and beat him half to death and nail him to a cross and say, I thank you, Father. It looks like the wheels have come off of this thing. The context doesn't look like you would say thank you about anything. But in my DNA, I know behind the scenes that there is a God who's at work and that event that's taking place is, is under his supervision. And it's going down exactly as he had planned. I don't care how bad Pilate sounds. I don't care how much attitude he's got. I don't care how much he thinks he's in charge and he's telling you this and telling you that. That guy's just doing exactly what the sovereign God of the universe has ordained for him to do. This is going down just like God planned it. I Thank you, God. This is a verse that many of us pull out in, into a context. This is why we do this. This is, this is our DNA speaking to us. Everybody in this church knows Romans chapter 8, verse 28. It's what we use from our DNA that tells us in the context that doesn't feel like we should have anything to be thankful about. This verse explains why I can respond with thanks. It says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So, hey, hey, guess what? God's got a purpose. My DNA tells me something on the inside of me tells me God has a purpose. God is at work every day, every moment. For those whom he foreknew, right, he knew them in advance. He also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son and, though, and so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? 
If God's for us, who's against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? God, I thank you in this moment. See, what, what this does, it pulls into this context a revelation from God that God is sovereignly in charge, that there is a knowledge of God. This is where theology matters because it is my knowledge of God in this moment that allows me to stand and say, God, I thank you. The context often doesn't inspire me to say thank you. I've got lots of contexts that I live in, and you do too. And there are many moments in those contexts where I am not inspired to say thank you. But here, there's something else that I become aware of. Don't make this mistake. Even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. They didn't hold that knowledge of God like in the first chapter of Romans they did not see fit to have God in their knowledge. Well, what is it about God to have here? I'm going I'm to step on some theological toes here just for a second. There are some people in Christendom who don't like the word used here. They don't like the word predestination. They don't like the doctrine of predestination. They don't like the concept of predestination. But before you give yourself permission to not like that word, recognize that's not a word made up by man. That's a Bible word. And it's a Bible word that says something about God. It says that God not only has the ability, but he uses this ability to stand at this point in human history and see all of human history at once and exist equally in every one of those moments. And in that posture, he makes a decision about that event over there. That word predestined, it's, it's, it's uh, if, you got, if you're a little uncomfortable with it, like, you know, well, well, God did that. God decided that. Well, that's exactly what the word means. It means to predetermine. That's what predestined means, to predetermine, to decide beforehand, to fix or appoint something. It's a word that would have been used to, to fix boundaries. So this is true about God. I don't know why it bothers people. To me, it inspires me. That God stands at this moment in history and he has the ability and he uses it to fix the boundaries way over there in my life before anything ever happens. All right, so the Bible actually says, we skipped the verse in Ephesians chapter 1, that before the foundation of the world, God was doing this. All right, so, you know, you guys who are builders, before anything came out of the ground, before there was cement anywhere, God had already ordained, fixed. He fixed it in the future that certain things were going to happen his way. Well, I don't know if I like that. I don't know why you wouldn't, but I get it. Some people don't, but just be very careful because that is what the Bible says. You can twist that word and squeeze all the letters out of it all you want. But it means exactly what it says. Well, I don't know, the predestination, that pre and destined, they go together and they mean exactly what they sound like they mean. 
He destined something to be something long ago. Now, to me, that's really, really good news. Because whatever's going on in my context today, like I'm traveling through time and boom, Monday pops up and, and a whole bunch of events happen right there in that moment. To people, to health, to finances, whatever they are in that moment. This is not comfortable to me. If you don't like the word predestined, this is not comfortable to me. In that moment, while I am being informed, God is first time being informed as well. You like that? You take comfort in that? Because, you know, if God preordained it, he can't be surprised by it, right? He can't be surprised by it because it can't go in another direction. Now, if it can go in another direction, every day God wakes up going, I wonder if it works today. It's Monday. We'll start again. I wonder if my plan comes through today. If God knows that what he has determined in advance will happen exactly as he said it will happen, well then, on Monday, when I discover, wow, this is really looking bad, God's not going, ooh, this is really looking bad. But give me a minute, Keith. I'm quick on my feet. That's me. I'm God. I'll come up with something. Just a second. Let me go consult some guys back on the other side of the angels. Is that your version of God? God is becoming aware of life just like you are becoming aware of life. I don't take any comfort in that. If my God is being surprised and he's not quite sure about today and then he makes me these promises about tomorrow, I know people like that. I don't, I don't need God to be like that. I've known people who have promised me all kinds of things and their track record is, well, you didn't come through then either and you didn't come through here either. Well, you halfway did it here. But I promise you on Monday, well, we'll see. Is that the kind of God you want? What you got in the Bible is a God who has in his being, this amazing being, he has traveled to Monday, he's arranged everything, and he's run back to today. But, except that he did that from the foundation of the world. So he traveled ahead of you into every spot in your life, every location, every relationship, every issue that could ever come up. He's gone before you. And finally, you arrive, and you are actually discovering the fingerprints of God, aren't you? If you look around carefully, now the context says, ain't nothing here to be thankful for. Until you look around and you notice, oh my goodness, that's God's footprint right there. He was here. He's already been at work here. See, now in that moment... And that's what my DNA is informing me, right? God said his invisible attributes have been clearly seen. God's ability to live in every moment of time, all at the same time, unlike you and me, is God's invisible attributes. But they didn't see fit to have that knowledge in their knowledge. And so they walked down a path of of darkness and destruction. Listen, be very careful that you're not like, yeah, I'm glad I'm not one of those heathens. Listen, there's some doctrinal, theological things that you might not like them, but don't make the mistake of not having God in your knowledge. This is what God is like. And that may mean, well, I can't explain everything else, but these things are true about God, and they bring something to us in our DNA, right? They bring this ability, 1 Thessalonians 5. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. 
for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Give thanks in all circumstances. All circumstances? Yeah. All circumstances. Mondays where the wheels come off and every diagnosis or report turns bad, give thanks in that moment. That's not a context that inspires thanks. Oh, yeah, yeah, but, but there's something in your DNA that's screaming out, give thanks. Because a sovereign, powerful God has been in that moment already before you. He's already at work. He has a plan, and he's God in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases, and no one can stay his hand. Right? This is what your DNA is screaming at you in that moment. Now, if I know that in this moment, in the face of what I don't like in that context, I can say, God, I thank you. I see you at work here. John Piper says, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their senseless minds were darkened. In other words, if your heart does not respond to God with gratitude, your mind will be darkened. That's a very sobering thought. You surrender yourself to the blinding work of Satan. Gratitude is the guardian of the lamp of the soul. If the guardian dies, the lamp goes out. Guard yourselves with gratitude. Now, let me finish with this thought. I, you know, I think, Lord, there's so much in this, and I'm trying to do this in a couple of weeks. Under that little label there, converse with your context. I just want to give you three things to take with you. If you forget everything else, would you please hold on to this? Cut it out, stick it in your purse, whatever. Three things, three things that are going to allow you to converse with your context because your context can feel pretty bad. It could be a bad health context. It could be a bad financial context. It could be a relational breakdown context. There could be enemies and hostility that have suddenly come into your life that you had no idea they could come context. It could be finals week context. All right, into that context, bring this thought with you. This is how you converse. Your DNA speaks to your context. One, God arrived here ahead of me. When you stand in that moment, get your senses about you, listen, right, the grace of God has appeared. Okay, the, well, the predestining work of God has appeared. God has made it known to us. And I can respond to it. So I invade this moment with all of its awkwardness and challenge, and I tell myself, God arrived here ahead of me. Second, there, there is more here than meets the eye. I look at my context, my situation, but I know there's more going on here right now than what meets the eye. I've got to tell my soul that. Third, God is purposefully and powerfully and sovereignly present right now. Lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. 
this God is with you. Listen, now, you rehearse those things. Don't lose those three elements. Because into my life, if I acknowledge those three things, my heart is able to smell like, thank you, Lord, thank you. And all that's going on, but God, you were here ahead of me. And, And you are here with me. And there's more going on here than what I can discern. You are at work here. God, thank you. That's what causes us to be thankful. And we're going to get ready for communion. If you guys would go ahead and, and come and prepare to serve communion. While they're getting in place, can we just take a moment and pray together? And Lord, in just a moment, we are... We're going to partake of a meal that is one of those mechanisms of response. It's a meal that calls us to respond to you. You have done something for us, to us, on our behalf. Lord, we are about to commemorate what you have done. We are about to remember and call to mind what you have done. God, would you rescue us from a meaningless effort right here? God, rescue us from mouthing words rather than being impacted by content. God, we we, we don't want to be a people who know something about communion but failed to honor you and to give you thanks. The grace of God has been revealed to us. Lord, would you let this meal reveal to us what you've done, who you are to us, the security of our lives, the favor that's upon us right now, the blessing of being your covenant people. That's what we're recalling as we take this meal. So God, prepare our hearts to receive from you as we celebrate communion. Let's do this, and I'll share something right before we partake. If you would just exit to your right from your settings there and just come up and receive the emblems of communion this morning.
See 
likely most of us here this morning grew up familiar with the word Eucharist. Grew up in a tradition that what we were doing this morning here was celebrating the Eucharist. I just associated that word with that activity. But when I started reading my Bible, I found in the original language of the New Testament the word Eucharistio. It's a Greek word that means giving thanks. It's interesting, this is a meal that gives thanks. That's what it does. What's really interesting is to observe Jesus instituting that meal. Apostle Paul repeats what the Gospels record when he says, The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. When he had Eucharistio, given thanks. Jesus, what, what is in your mind at that moment that you are giving thanks? This is the night your friend will betray you. And in just a few hours, you are aware of the most horrific experience anyone has ever had when the wrath and full punishment of God will be poured out on you in just a few hours. That's the context of Jesus taking the bread and the cup when he had given thanks. Jesus knew something beyond that context, didn't he? You got to know something beyond your context. You got to know something this morning that eye has not seen and ear has not heard, but that is as true of your life as anything else that exists for you. And this is why we celebrate communion. Because there's a richness that when Jesus surrendered his body to be beaten and broken and to physically represent the taking of our punishment upon himself, it was so that you and I would never, ever know that punishment ourselves. We would be spared from an eternity. All of us had an appointment with the gates of hell. All of us did. It wasn't like you were just waiting to determine whether at the end of your life you might go there. You and I had an appointment with the gates of hell that would open for us and we would spend eternity being broken by the weight of sin. And we hold in our hands a reminder that will never be our future. So whatever it is you got going on this morning, Look at this for a second and say, thank you, Father. Let's take the breath. We drank a, a cup in this meal. 
symbolize the blood of Jesus that would be shed. And the blood of Jesus would do something that nothing else, nothing else could ever do. No human behavior, no trying to be a better person, no determined to be a good religious person could ever do. That blood forgives sin. It's the only thing that forgives sin. There's nothing else in the created universe that has the power to forgive sin but the blood of Jesus. And when forgiveness takes place, there's a celebration in us of a debt that's been canceled and an even greater celebration of our reunion to God. We have been restored to Him by our sin being removed. Listen, this morning... There's, you know, several hundred contexts being lived in this room. From health diagnosis to what's going to happen in this relationship to I don't really know how I'm going to get through this season. Right, that's the context all over this room right now. But when you stare at this cup, something inside of you informs you about something else that's true. Your sins are forgiven. And the God who is perfect, who you and I could never reach, is now completely accessible to us. For we have been restored to him by the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. So can you look at this cup for a moment? Can you just say, thank you. pray that we are leaving here today having seen some things that are inspiring us to say thank you today Lord right here right now in this moment in this season with all the needs that I have that I can't meet with all the threats and opposition that may be in my world God I see some other things this morning. I see that you've gone before me and you've already been here. I see your footprints and your fingerprints. I see that there's more going on here than what meets the eye, Lord. Your purpose, your counsel will stand. You will accomplish everything that you intended. I see that you are with me. You, sovereign, powerful, loving God, you are with me. So Lord, with that in mind, God, we stand today and we say thank you. Our hearts are filled with gratitude for a thousand reasons and a thousand more upon that and a thousand more we'll discover tomorrow. So Lord, would you make us to be a people who smell like thankfulness, who smell like a people grateful for all that you are to us, all that you have done, and all that you will do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Bless you guys.